Thank you. Thank you very much, Claire. Sorry, sorry. Um, so I think there's uh, a number of resonances between what Francesca was saying there, and I think what Leticia is going to say as, as well, um, and this paper. Though there's a marked difference too in that um, my subjects, my traveling Indian subjects, are all Anglophone, and their, their literary um, productions um, are are in English, and that, that's something that they pride themselves on, and English is for them a kind of a, um, a, a language of travel, and that is sort of articulated through their travel experiences and, and, and is perfected also through those experiences. Um, and I would actually, ha had I been fully aware, I think, of, of, the, of what you two are talking about, have talked more about Sarojini Naidu, who's, who's whose poetic persona fits so much more um, interestingly in relation to um, your subjects. I think I, w I would have concentrated on her, but I don't. Um, so that's a virtual paper, as it were, in the room. Um, but, w but what I want to focus on here, uh, and I think my paper is a little bit too long, actually, so I'm, I might rush it a little bit at first and then just sort of curtail it. What, what I want to focus on here is um, late 19th century Indian travelers to Britain, they weren't all literary figures. Um, folks who I've been working on for, for quite some time, but I think I will continue to, to work on because they are such fascinating subjects. People like Tori Dutt, Naidu, who I already mentioned, um, uh, M.K. Gandhi, and Rabindranath Tagore. And I've been concerned in recent work, in particular in this book, with examining how their travel to and presence in Britain uh, and involvement with various British uh, literary figures, um, uh, intellectuals, politicians and activists had a shaping effect on how cosmopolitan life in the imperial capital was understood, was lived, was conceived, and also on how intercultural hospitality was expressed. Remembering, of course, that this is also a time of empire at, at its fullest extent of high imperialism and of rampant racism on the imperial frontier, in particular in British India. So there's a real contrast here with, of, um, you know, of British elitism and racism, as it were, on, on that periphery and then and a, a cosmopolitanism in which Indians are participating and helping to define um, at the center. So these traveling Indians developed self-consciously cosmopolitan identities and contributed to how cosmopolitanism was understood in turn of the century Britain. And they did so uh, through their social formation as cultural travelers in India, already then, and then through making the journey east to west, something that Amitav Ghosh very helpfully for my purposes caused traveling in the West. So the, the, the moment that they embarked for, for France or for, for Britain um, at, say, Apollo Bunda in, 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 in uh, Bombay, they were already traveling in the West. They weren't, as it were, moving east-west. And they were self-made Westerners as well as cosmopolitans, cosmopolitans due to their colonial education their, and their reading and their writing. So before they started out, they were at once metropolitan um, and, and colonial in their social formation and how they understood themselves as cosmopolitan readers. So essentially, in all of this, and these are my opening remarks still, and then I'll move on to the, the sort of the core. Um, 
essentially what I'm trying to understand in this work is how um, cosmopolitanism or the cosmopolitanism expressed by these traveling Indians was something that was bound up in their imperial experience. So, so I suppose the, the question that underlies all of that is, is, this, is, was there something about their cosmopolitanism that required empire? Writing in a variety of different genres, not forgetting journalism, allowed these traveling Indians um, to articulate their experience of migration and to give it conceptual shape. Journals and letters home, the more retrospective forms of the travelogue and the memoir, but also the colonial newspaper, and that will be my sort of case study at the end, provided forms through which colonial travelers, including um, those traveling from India, could reflect on the modern imperial world that they were set themselves making and remaking in the process of moving through it. And something of, of the this, this, this same making and remaking has been evident in the examples that Francesca talked us through. So the newspaper and the periodical provided the Indian migrant imagination with the interpretive tools through which to make sense of the pell-mell contingencies of their experience, especially given the stark juxtapositions of geographies and social worlds that their layout made possible. So there was something about the pell-mell worlds that these, these Indian colonial travelers were negotiating that corresponded to the pell-mell juxtapositions on the newspaper page itself. If, as Benedict Anderson contends, the world was conceptualized, reconceptualized, and consumed on a daily basis by way of the newspaper's format and its mass propagation, this was something that happened not only in London or New York, but in Bombay and Calcutta too. And the, the Indian travelers that I look at were all of them in interesting ways, consumers of newspapers or themselves journalists, um, and, and in a very active way. So equipped with these powerful city imaginaries, these Indian travelers, when they reached the imperial metropolis, inevitably read its public spaces through a vocabulary of the urban everyday and of cosmopolitan exchange and repartee acquired as part of their city experience back in India and their newspaper reading. And though London was generally seen to be far larger and more crowded than their home cities, still it was the case that the features that these travelers singled out for comment had already been formalized as synecdoches or codes of a cosmopolitan city drawn from what they knew of Indian cities, or what Partamitta very helpfully terms from their virtual cosmopolitanism, their cosmopolitan know-how. The serial generation of modern meanings in the newspaper, so therefore far from moving outwards from the single source of the European metropolis, is more accurately understood through these travelers' experience as a two-way or even multi-directional process. As these Indian travelers moved across the world and mingled with strangers, as did other modern travelers, and most notably, of course, Africans on the Middle Passage, their relatively stable local and regional identities and belief systems brought over from wherever they departed from, from home, were thrown into new, unpredictable, and quintessentially modern and cosmopolitan mixes. In interpreting these experiences, it could not but be helpful that the processes of confronting and then convening a heterogeneous world had been encapsulated again 
in the very pages of the newspapers and periodicals which they had consumed at home and to which some had contributed. How am I doing for time, Claire? Because I think I, what I might do actually is just is is um, there's there's a bit more here from um, Partamitta thinking about the hybrid cosmopolis of the Indian city in the late 19th century, which is which is sort of quite useful. But um, I think I'll move straight on to my my example because it sort of it gives sort of concrete form to to what I'm. Oh God! I've got I've got masses. Ah, oh, okay. Okay, right. Um, the unchanging format of the daily newspaper, whether produced in Bombay or in Brisbane, often though not exclusively in English, that's important, replicated social imaginaries from one city to another, wherever in the world it was produced. Through their participation in the empire's burgeoning print cultures, therefore, the elite inhabitants, the Anglophone elite inhabitants in this case, of Bombay, Calcutta, and London, amongst other colonial cities, can be seen to have shared in a loose corpus of ideas of the modern and the cosmopolitan that drew them into a global virtual community, a virtual cosmopolitanism, a community that was in part fostered at first within the precincts of their own cities. The replication of an urban imaginary through print technology and through co cosmopolitan reading is persuasively illustrated in the example offered by the relatively unknown, yet for all that representative <coughs> provincial paper, The Indian Mirror, which was the weekly journal of the Calcutta Brahmo Samaj. Like the later Modern Review, the Calcutta Monthly associated with Bengal's modernist art movement the Indian Mirror was broadly liberal nationalist and reformist, much concerned with the measure of Indian loyalty to the crown. Its four-page broadsheet featured short reports on foreign news, often relating to India, but, all, but also um, political developments that might have been of interest to Indians, such as the Irish home, Irish home rule developments. So short reports on foreign news, and also civic notices, for example, <coughs> concerning temporary closures of the Hooli Bridge, alongside reviews of local cultural events, a performance of the Mahasheta at the Opera House, for instance, where, quote, a well-written English synopsis of the piece was, quote, placed into the hands of those who could not follow it in the original. An interesting multicultural event being staged there in, in, the, in the review in the paper. As in other metropolitan as well as regional newspapers of the day, and I'm actually not sure about that distinction between the metropolitan and the regional in the, in the context of this material, um, but I suppose what I'm referring to there is metropolitan as in London and regional as in um, Calcutta. As in other metropolitan and regional newspapers of the day, these notices and reviews were juxtaposed with advertisements concentrated in the side columns and on the back page. Some of these ads interestingly featured businesses, publishers, opticians, with outlets in London and Bombay, as well as Calcutta. So, for example, Lawrence and Mayo opticians who advertised their perfect pebble spectacles in the Indian Mirror's pages boasted of offices at 1A Old Bond Street in London, in Rampart Row, Bombay, and 3 to 4 Hare Street, Calcutta. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting running together through these ads of these, of these 
geographically very distant spaces. In respect of virtual cosmopolitanism, perhaps the most interesting articles in the 1886 Indian Mirror were its almost daily reports on the government of India's colonial and Indian exhibition in London, which Tennyson also commented on, wrote about in a poem, which highlighted both insignificant and important features and events from this huge exhibition. The detail lavished on, for example, a description of the installation of the display cases or an address by the Prince of Wales created a striking effect of close yet transnational focus, certainly when compared to the same paper's far briefer broad brush reports on Calcutta-based events. So a lot of focus at some length on London and, and shorter, more concentrated telegraphic articles on Calcutta-based events. From the point of view of the Indian Mirror, or indeed of other of India's regional newspapers, such as the Bombay Gazette, it is as if the exhibition were taking place, in a sense, not thousands of miles away, but in a parallel world proximate to Calcutta, in a virtual cosmopolitan space. The imperial communications networks that sustained the newspapers created so dynamic a connectivity between the empire's cities that, in local readers' imaginations at least, the periphery could be regarded as less distant from the metropolis than the latter's elevated status implied. Within these lively networks, Indian tourists writing on the exhibition in London might overnight convert their travel notes into newspaper columns for Calcutta or Colombo newspapers. And Thomas Cook and Sons set out to reinforce existing intercultural links by arranging regu regular tours from India to the exhibition via the Suez Canal. Within the mirror worlds of the Indian mirror, therefore, the India being staged abroad could be placed cheek by jowl with the India being lived at home within the time frame of a single day. The interconnected narrative worlds implied in the repackaged and juxtaposed re reports found no suture between these different Indias just as London-based newspapers, too, were conjuring into being an increasingly globalized world through intersplicing stories from the colonies with reports on Britain. So that was one point of focus for, for if you like, the social formation of cosmopolitan Indians at this time. Um, it was this, the, the social formation with which they, as it were, um, embarked on their journey from usually Bombay to London. But then um, I, I go on to say in a, in a longer version of this paper that the, the journey itself then becomes a way through which they hone their cosmopolitan attitudes and values, um, their demeanor, the language through which they introduce themselves to strangers on board ship, so that by the time they arrive in Southampton or Marseille, because a number of, a number of these travelers, uh, the, the steamships take them to Marseille, they then take trains across France and, and on to uh, Dover, on to Southampton. Um, they, it, it's that experience of, of journeying, of conversation on board ship that hones the cosmopolitan uh, identities they then present in London. Um, and in that sense, what they are doing is they are architects of the cosmopolitan in a much, much more self-conscious and sort of everyday way 
um, through the everyday encounters on board these steamships than are their, their British hosts. Um, and I think I'll, I'll probably just sort of leave it there. Thank okay, you so thank you.